0: as we've come to your house to worship you. We've sought to do that, Lord, both in meditation and giving, in singing, in praising, and in prayer. Now, Lord, I'm praying that as we open our hearts to the power of your word, that we would sense what it is you're asking us to do and understand that you'll give us the power to do it. So, Lord, if we have to change our minds May we not be resistant. And if we have to change our persons, may we give you complete control. We want the psalm and the fullness to be a message of Christ. So now, Lord, please anoint us all, whether we're watching online or whether we're sitting in this pew or whether we're presenting. Guide us now to that end, I pray. Please be our teacher. Touch and transform, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled my message, Earth's Final Virtue Signal, The Mark of the Beast. Now, I'm going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to try to be succinct, not use up more time than is necessary, and not go too fast to confuse. I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm preaching the sermon from the very beginning, which is one theory of communication. Uh, Another theory would be let you figure that out but I'm going to tell you why. We've just gone through a period of time in Earth's history which is unique. The world shut down in a period of a few weeks. Then we went through a period of fear, coercion, and punitive measures. When the world goes through a phenomenon like that, everybody has to decide whether they're participating or not participating. Now, when we get to the end of this message, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, But we're living in a world that's vacant of biblical theology, so it must create its own new religion, which is what some have called moral therapeutic deism, which is everybody should feel good, we should acknowledge there's a God, but we'll make him to fit our day and age. What I want you to understand is that every day in your life you have the opportunity to live for Christ, to live a surrendered life. In that surrendered life, you should have beauty and peace and purpose and joy. And if you're carrying heaviness, God will be a balm for that as well, the balm in Gilead. But as he gives you strength and as he architects your days, he gives you a chance to embrace the cross and as the song says once to every man and nation, to toil up new Calvaries ever. In other words... The cross must come into our lives or else there is no redeeming, renewing, repurposing power in our religion. It is the absence of the cross in religion that makes religion palatable to the the unconverted person. But true religion will challenge you as it assures you and will call you in the presence and power of the living Christ to higher ground. Now, we watched our society go through a microcosm of events similar to other chapters where many people sensed something was off, but they were reluctant to stand up and say so. Consequently, we're living now on the backside where we're doing the, the post-op or the post-mortem on two years of a unique encounter. And in those two years, there were things that were put to the front in the name of science and the common good that did not really play themselves out in regards like they were postured. And what I wanna do this morning is I wanna remind you that the same scenario, only in multiple levels increased, is what we're going to face in the future. We call it the mark of the beast. And while there were people who had on their lips phrases that suggested that if there wasn't a quick and immediate compliance with society's solutions, somehow we were enemies of the corporate well being of society or enemies of the state, I'm here to suggest to you today that even those who might feel differently about some of this su- subject matter acknowledge that there were components about the last two years which were a dry run for what's coming. So what's the bottom line? As I go through these next slides, you need to understand that at the end of the day, standing for what you believe is preparation for standing in the future. Standing for what you believe now and figuring it out and knowing what it is, is preparation for what's coming in the future. Now I have good news for you. Jesus is the ultimate life coach. He's the ultimate counselor. He is present with us. His angels surround us and protect us. And the good news is He takes us one step at a time. So the first step for you may be saying to a friend, no, nope, I don't want to do that. It could be over drugs or alcohol or recreational use of certain drugs. It could be over music or entertainment. It could be over all kinds of things, Sabbath observance. But When you get an opportunity to live by your convictions, don't be confused. That's the preparation for hanging on to your convictions that God is Lord, only His words should be obeyed, and you're not giving in for a paycheck or even for breath itself. That's where I'm going this morning. Now, the Bible tells us that certain people's consciences will be seared. In other words, slowly they'll surrender to the living, powerful presence and communicating of the Holy Spirit For some kind of security. That's where the future is going. We see this security dynamic having operated over the last two years. Nobody wants to lose their job or their educational benefits or their friends, and nobody wants to be called out as bad. The truth of the matter is the less good that's in you, the less you can stand and accept the criticisms of society. There's an inner strength that comes from God that you only get from Jesus. But it does get stronger as you exercise it. So when you surrender your convictions for the sake of compliance and conformity and some kind of societal comfort, you are setting yourself up for what you don't want and what I'm going to talk about today, the mark of the beast, which is not a branding on the forehead. It is one of Satan's devices to combine with falsehood just enough truth to give it plausibility. And thus is the conundrum for a free society. I can stand up here and say what I want to say, You hopefully came prayerful and prepared to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Hopefully you can challenge what is said up here, and you can have your own convictions about what is said from the front, and you can see according to the Scriptures and the prophetic voice whether or not what was said was true. Just because I say it doesn't make it true. Many of us believe with confidence in this statement because of its author that Satan will mix truth and error. If you think the last two years, even dealing with issues of our body temple, didn't have truth and error mixed with them, you ought to stop and say, does Satan ever really really use a different playbook? The answer is no. There is always truth and error in Satan's method because he understands credibility. He just links his truth to the self-serving dynamics of the human heart, and he leaves off a little bit. You remember when he took Jesus up on the temple? He said, throw yourself off because God said he'll protect you. And he even quoted from the Bible. He'll give his angels charge over you. The only thing he did, there's the truth. He left off the last little bit that said, to keep you in all of your ways. And presuming upon God's intervention for your well-being is not to keep you in all your ways. Are you tracking with me? The devil's going to be a, a, a spirit-quoting imitator of Christ at the very end. So, knowing our Bible and knowing the truth is going to be important. It's the spirit of truth. You know, something sounds wrong there. So, let me go back to my trifecta. Fear, compulsion, and punitive or persecuting dynamics. That trifecta should have told a lot of people right at the very beginning, something's wrong in our society. Because we're using fear, coercion, and punitive measures. We're going to see this playbook replayed. Now, Uriah Smith had some interesting comments on the mark of the beast. You remember, the mark is pretty serious. Take your Bibles and open to Revelation 14. I just want to read you the warning. There's a warning label on this message. It comes straight from the Bible, and I want to make sure you get it. Revelation 14, beginning with verse 9, reading from the New American Standard. Revelation 14, verse 9, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, I'm going to show you you're either a believer or a complier. You either go along to get along for a supposed short-lived security, or you actually imbibe this stuff, whatever this is. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There is no stronger warning against anything in the Bible than this last message of the three angels' messages. God is trying to get our attention and say the last acts of grace are in front of us and the greatest deception is mixed in with it. So pay close attention. Uriah Smith gets it right. He says, he who refuses to comply with these demands of earthly powers exposes himself to the severest penalties of which human beings can inflict. In other words, you won't be able to buy or sell and eventually there'll be a warrant on your head for your lungs to quit working no more breathing. It's called death. But he contrasts it with this statement. He says, he who does comply exposes himself to the utmost, most terrible threatenings of divine wrath to be found in the Word of God. That comes from the book Daniel and Revelation. I thought he summarized it quite well. That's why I put it for you on the screen. You're going to be caught between a rock and a hard place, so you better be standing on the rock, right? You better be hid under those wings. You better be trusting in those promises. You better have some chapters that said, my God is faithful and true. And by the way, friends, there's no doubt that Jesus can, will, and is doing this. And you don't have to worry about it unless you're living a nominal secular type religious experience. And then listening to this message today would cause some fear. And I think it might be a sober reflection to consider What that is. The more zeal a church has when it is off track and pursuing a wrong course, the greater will be the damage which it can do. Now, I don't have the time to do this, but I'm going to remind you in Revelation 12, there's a woman clothed in the light of the sun, crowned with 12 stars on her head, standing on the moon. That's the true church in the book of Revelation. There's a woman clothed in scarlet, riding a beast. She's got in her cup the abominations of her whoredom. That is the false church in the book of Revelation. So just let me make sure you understand something. The book of Revelation explains the battle between God's truth embodied and embraced by the true church and error, which is plausible enough through some inclusion of truth to be in the message of the false church. It's a battle of the two churches at the end of time. Any lesser understanding sets you up to be deceived by some kind of other distraction. The message at the end is about Loyalty to God, love to God, faithfulness to his word through the indwelling Christ. The counterfeit is a supposed loyalty to God that exercises all kinds of punitive and persecuting dynamics. But it is about two churches. Who is this beast? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what it is, exposes Satan's deceptions. So let's get a little understanding. I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, this is the middle of the three beasts that I spoke to you last week. I talked about a seven-headed beast with ten horns, and it represented pagan Rome. Right now, we're looking at the next of the three beasts in Revelation 12 and 13, and we will find out that it has a blasphemous name. It represents Papal Rome. And then we'll see in the last part of chapter 13, which I won't go in today, a lamb-like beast that speaks as a dragon and has two horns, and that will be Protestantism acting as Rome throughout history. So we have three powers that exercise the same governing tendencies. But this beast, the middle, is going to represent the second segment or the second beast of three. So this is a beast. It's rising out of the sea. It has seven heads and ten horns and crowns, and on his head, a blasphemous name. So it starts to take on a religious character. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and what we're going to see is that it's got different heads, it's got different feet, it's got different body parts. Where do these come from? These come out of the, out of the uh, prophetic book of Daniel, where all of these beasts represented the passage of time of persecuting world powers on God's church. His feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, in Bible prophecy, a beast represents a political power. How do we know that? Bible tells us. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So these beasts out of Daniel chapter 7 are illustrative of the conglomeration of beastly power at the end of time. But a beast represents a political power. Now the waters, we saw this beast coming up out of. Revelation's clear. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So in Bible prophecy, waters equal people. We see the second beast of Revelation coming up with a blasphemous name out of the waters. We see the last beast of Revelation 13 coming up out of the dry land. It's the difference between highly populated areas and less populated areas. But the waters represent people. When we come to where this beast received its power, it says the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Well, this is an interesting thing. The dragon's the beast of the previous chapter. And we find out as we're about to see that this dragon represents pagan Rome and was a persecuting power to God himself. The dragon equals Satan. Satan gives these kingdoms their power. Who did pagan Rome give its power, throne, and great authority to? Well, in Revelation 12, Satan works through pagan Rome to destroy Jesus. We're going to take a step backwards here. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. All right, here's the true church. And he was going to devour her child as soon as it was born. It was Rome that had the babies killed. It was Rome that had Jesus killed. It was Rome that tried to keep him in the tomb. It was Rome that ruled the world when God began rebirthing, as it were, the plan of salvation. So this beast that receives its power from the dragon is receiving its power from pagan Rome. But there are six clear identifying marks in the Scripture, and I want to remind you of number one. The authority of pagan Rome is passed on to the Roman church. Quoting from very independent sources, LaBianca says, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs of Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, their prestige, and their titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman empire sitting crowned upon its grave. This is common understanding of history. Now, The beast power I'm talking about is not a person. It's not even a group of people. It is a religious political system. So today I need to remind you that the final call of salvation in the Gospels, the Gospel of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is in Revelation 18. And it is a call to come out of this power. Jesus said, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. It doesn't really matter in some senses, although it does matter what communion of faith you're in. There is a call to the purifying voice of the Holy Spirit to come into the remnant church which keeps the commandments of God and has the prophetic voice, the testimony of Jesus. It's very important for us to understand, no individuals are being talked about here, but systems, a true church and a false church. The beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that grew up out of Rome. The second thing you know about, need to know about this beast is that it is a worldwide religious power. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. It has a global dynamic. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So it is a worldwide religious power. Blasphemies are dynamics of religious conversations. How were they described in the life of Jesus? Well, when the, the paralytic was let down through the roof, Jesus said, be of good cheer, your sons are forgiven. And every Pharisee in the room stood up and said, excuse me, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? However, the Catholic Church believes that God is obliged to abide by the judgments of his priest and either pardon or not pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes, and God subscribes to it. Listen, this is a book for training priests. I have a copy of the book in my library. It's a very difficult copy to get a hold of. God gave the power of forgiveness only to himself. It was not given to any human priest. We know that Jesus is our priest in the heavenly sanctuary. There is one name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's another dynamic of blasphemy, and it has to do with making oneself out to be God. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you. You see, they were going to stone him for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. Does the Roman church make this claim? It most certainly does. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. We go a little bit farther and we find out that he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. This power claims equality with God, both in presence and representation and in ministry, and it is unacceptable. This power is also a persecuting power. What do we mean by that? It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Did the church and state unite under Rome, that is papal Rome, and persecute those who did not go along with it? Absolutely yes. The annals of history are full of these stories. And whether it's the 55 million that some estimate or some number less or more, it is a large number. This power reigns for 1,260 years. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now in the Bible we find out that there's mathematical proof of the identity of this power. One prophetic day equals one literal year. Ezekiel laid on his side for a number of days, and God said it's going to be a day for the year. The spies went in the land to spy out the promised land. They came back. Ten of them said you couldn't do it. Two said you could. The people rose up and said, oh, we wish we would have died in the wilderness. God said, I've labored long with you, and now I'm actually going to give you your wish. As the spies went for 40 days, you shall wander for 40 years, a day for a year in prophetic literature. You take 42 months, 30 days in a month, times 42, you get 1260 days. That number is anchored down three different ways, which I won't take the time to explain right now, but you need to know from the final phasing out of Roman power, there is a 1260 year period of time. Secular history calls it the dark ages. And it's during that period of year that the Holy Roman Empire is in the ascendancy. And you cannot think with freedom in scientific or theological lines. You are compelled to find your wisdom only from one source. You cannot read the Bible because they are chained to the podiums in Roman Catholic cathedrals. You cannot have your own opinion. You cannot have your own convictions. You must open your mouth and receive what comes from a duly ordained expert. God is not able to communicate directly with you. It must always be through a human intercessory. These are some of the blasphemies of this age, and it is called the Dark Ages for a reason. We find at the end of those 1260 years, Napoleon is grieved and he's dealing with the Vatican. He sends a commander by the name of Berthier who did exactly as the prophecy predicted. He delivered a deadly wound. These remarkable events have to do with a Frenchman that was murdered in Rome, which gave Napoleon an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end, so thought, to the papal temporal power. Well, almost to the power itself. The aged pontum himself was carried off into uh, Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that this pope has a number, that this agency, I should say, of religion has a number. Let's look at that. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Indeed, we just heard about that. It appeared that the end of ascendancy for the Roman papal system had come, but this wound was Healed. Now, for every Seventh-day Adventist for whom this is not new, I want to make sure you see something. For all the healing that we've seen, for all the hand-reaching across the abyss, I need you to understand something. We are still not to this point in the history of this prophecy where all the world wondered or marveled after the beast. That is developing. It has not come yet. Why I've entitled this message, Earth's Final virtue signaling, the mark of the beast, is because we're not there yet, but we've started to see how virtue signaling, the absence of genuine religion, and the desire to be liked and accepted have come together in a little wake-up call to planet earth that more of that type is on its way. Here is wisdom. The Bible says, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, his number is 666. Now, you can play with a lot of things and turn this number around a lot of names and identities. If this wasn't number six on the list, it could mean very little. But because it's there, and this concept of perfection and apostasy are represented by these numbers, and because there's two women represented in the book of Revelation for the true and the false church. We should expect the false church to come up just a little bit short. Enough truth to be somewhat quasi-plausible and enough error to damn and take away the divine gift of eternal life from those Jesus has paid such a high price to give it to. One of the official titles for the papacy is Vicarious Filii Dei. If you take the Roman, Roman numerals of those letters and give them actual number value, you can see that this very distinctly does fall in line with the other five dynamics. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So when we think about this mark of the beast, what is it going to be? First of all, we need to understand that the sign of God is its antithesis. It is the opposite. What is that? I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we've sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. Now nobody should be surprised if there's a mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. There should be evidence of the seal of God. For certainly God's not going to leave his angels and his people without the assurance of his presence. Now there's two ways to get the mark of the beast. You can get it in the forehead. You can get it in the hand. It's one thing to actually believe. It's another thing to go along out of fear and self-interest. I want everybody listening today or online to think about this. When my well-being is compromised by my association with Christ, when I think there's a principle of godliness, a precept, maybe even liberty of conscience, maybe even religious liberty, and I'm silent and I do nothing, am I not, in a sense, channeling my feet on a course to actually receive a greater condemnation for a greater cowardice as somewhere farther down the road when I'm looking out for myself. I'm not thinking about what this says about society, free governance, a democratic republic, let alone the idea that my body is the temple of the living Christ. And I have sovereignty over what goes into it. These dynamics of coercion and force that we've gone through in the last couple years are worthy of a post-operative, post-mortem reflection for my life personally in regards to what I was willing to say or do to friends or family members relative to how this portrays or portends to the future and relative to whether or not I have enough stiffness in my spine through the presence of the living God to endure a little persecution in advance of the greater that's coming. I want everybody to think about this. This is a huge deal. Nobody's going to get the seal of God anywhere but in their foreheads because God never uses force. You'll have to trust Him and believe in Him. But I want you to know you will be sustained and protected by Him for He will give His angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways and obeying the fourth commandment is the way for certain. God has in mind that we receive a sign In the same way that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a sign of righteousness, so the law of God written on our hearts is a sign among God's own disciples. I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign, the Bible says, letting Scripture interpret itself, line upon line, precept upon precept. In the fourth commandment, we see that the indicators of a royal seal are there. Name, title, and territory. What are they? The name, is the Lord your God. The title is the creator. The territory is heaven and earth. That sums it up. It's the only commandment in the 10 that encompasses those dynamics of who God is. Jesus said, speaking on Mount Sinai, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The only commandment we're told not to forget is the one the world is running away from and the one that will be leveraged in a counterfeit at the end. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. Now friends, some of us are getting a little bit lax on our Sabbath keeping. We use it as a day of travel. We use it as a day of complete making up for the imbalance in our life by resting and sleeping all day long. We don't really have Christ enshrined in our heart in all parts, and so Sabbath-keeping is burdensome even to us, and if it wasn't for the fact that we could recharge our physical batteries, we would find it a bore. Am I speaking too direct with some of you? I want you to think about this. Unless Christ is enshrined in all of your life, you know, what does the Bible say? It says. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of the widows and the orphans in their distress and to keep oneself, what? Unspotted from the world. I'm afraid our garments of righteousness, sometimes falsely so-called, are spotted with the same activities that the world's engaged in. We're watching the same stuff, listening to the same stuff, buying the same stuff. And consequently, we have no rest in Christ. And the idea of resting physically all day long for 24 hours... The idea of only doing something but think about religion is a chore and a bore. I want us to stop and say to ourselves, if we're going to live free, we've got to live totally surrendered. So what convictions you have from your study and your prayer, live by them and pay a price for following Jesus and see if the fellowship of the believers and the fellowship with Christ and the rest in your soul are better than even the physical rest that you get. The Lord blessed this day, but it's hard for you to enjoy the blessing if your real joy is in the world. So I'm appealing to you. We're coming to the end of all things. Jesus will appear in the cloud, and before he does, great trauma for society and for nature and for the economy and all these places. But I need to remind you, for God's people, he's the ultimate father, and your bread and your water and your security will be sure. You'll be delivered, friends. You'll be given the strength for what you face. Hallow my Sabbath, and there'll be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Yes, the seal of God's people at the end of time is faithfulness or loyalty to the Creator, and no commandment expresses that more distinctly and in contradistinction to the rest of the Christian world than the seventh-day Sabbath. It's a showdown over whether or not God is really God or not, and there's going to be a group of people that say, though you slay me, I will serve him. This friends is the call, so let's serve him today. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast is worship. He wants to be worshipped. What does the Rome of church claim as its sign of authority? Well, that tradition is above the Bible. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And the transference of the Sabbath observance is proof of the fact. Now, these are not things taken from some out-of-the-way reference. The church is proud of it. I showed you in the sermon last Sabbath that the, the word tradition was capitalized when I was quoting from a Catholic source. That's because tradition is sacred, just like to us the Bible is sacred. But it is not, friends. While there is much value in tradition, we don't have to abandon tradition. But tradition must be shaped by the Word of God, just like culture. There is no culture that is sacred, but it is God's culture that defines God's people in the end of time that protects them from the experience of the renewed heart and the looking forward to Jesus. God's mark is the Sabbath. The Roman church's mark is Sunday. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did, happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think the scriptures should be their sole authority should logically become Seventh day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. And the people said, Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Jesus is your best friend. He said, This is eternal life that you'd know me. The devil wants to make sure whether your name's registered on the books of a Seventh day Adventist church or not that you never know him. Because you can be a very secular Seventh-day Adventist. And you can also be a Spirit-filled Seventh-day Adventist. But you need to know nominal Christianity is to be dreaded, the spirit of prophecy would say, so today, friends, while I'm preaching on this, I don't want you to just be going, yeah, checklist, mark of the beast, six things, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm talking to you about how to be ready to face it. And the message is you have to be ready today. Today you're going to face some little challenge and you're going to be defined as a stronger, more faith-filled person because you acted with compassion, nobility, and dignity on your convictions. 666 symbolizes man's rebellion and changing God's law which is his seal, his sign, his mark of authority. False worship and true worship. It will center around worship. In every age, God has called men and women to take a stand. If you think all that stand is to be saved up until we get to the final convulsions of the false worship day and the true worship day, you're making a grave mistake. Just like the Roman Empire didn't die overnight, it died slowly. So this democratic republic is dying slowly. So the lamb-like beast is starting to sound more and more like a dragon. And it's had moments in its chapters where it has sounded quite distinctly like a dragon. But now, more than ever, God's inviting us to take a stand. Now, if you have not read the book Great Controversy in the recent past, let one of your New Year's resolutions be to get a copy, to get some markers, to have a pen and a ruler, and to go very slowly through this book. I'm now going to quote to you from the Great Controversy. And as I go through it, I hope that there is a wonderful clarity of the future, a wonderful sobering truth about what God is calling us to be and what we're going to face. And I hope that you have a renewed interest in understanding what's going to happen. This book is to be read, embraced, give you courage and strength, and it is to be shared. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final, it's but the final, it's not the only final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering, the final one that is, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. Did you get it? The pure woman, the false woman. It's both religious. There is some truth in the wrong woman, and there is purifying truth in the true woman Experience True church, false church. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. Now, I was going to a meeting at the conference office on Thursday. I got about halfway there and the meeting was canceled. I turned around. I came back. I stopped in at a large mega market grocery store in Benton Harbor. I don't usually bother going through the book section, but on this day, it was the quickest path from where I was to where I wanted to go. As I walked through the young readers and the young adult readers' aisle, I was stunned, absolutely stunned. As I went past, well, number one, was it 300 million copies of the diaries of a wimpy kid? Please don't let your kids read this garbage. If 300 million copies had been sold, There's only 380 million people in America. That means that probably there's enough copies out there for every kid in America and probably the next five or six nations on the face of the globe to give one to every kid. It will do nothing but take and cheapen the mind of your young people. Your kids are going to face this stuff. They're either going to be strong in the Lord and free in Christ or they're going to be picked off by the culture long before we ever get to the crisis. But it got worse. As I walked down the last three quarters of the aisle, I thought to myself, what? What? I looked at books, four or five rows of books, and I would say that 90% of the books either had to do with a new cultural value system about homosexuality and transgenderism, but way more had to do with the dynamics of the occult, Harry Potter, demonology. I started taking pictures. Let their cameras take pictures of me. I'm gonna take some pictures of their stuff. And I decided that wasn't working very good, so I went to taking a video. And I just videoed 16 seconds of going back and forth. I cannot tell you how dark the books are. You go to your superstore in Benton Harbor. There's only a couple of them. And you look for the young adult reader's aisle. And you see if you're not traumatized by the spiritual jarring of what's being fed to the godless dynamics of an unsaved youth in our arena. If anybody is enmeshed in any of these books... If they have a hold on you, I'm calling on you today before the sun goes down to take them out to your backyard and burn them. And confess that it was wrong to put in your mind, which is to be the sacred temple of Jesus, things that the devil will use to leverage and pry your hands off the truth for this life. Spiritualism. You know how important it is to know that when you die, you're dead? It's this important. Every manifestation of spiritual dynamic that doesn't occur with the word of, doesn't concur with the Word of God is demons. So that person that comes back to life, that person who works a miracle in the name supposedly of God and then tells you to go directly against what the Bible says, it's demonology. That's why it's so important. Sunday sacredness? We're living in an age of biblical illiteracy. You know how many millions and billions of Bibles have been printed? When's the last time we read ours true? Marked it up, went slow, did some scripture comparing with scripture. Sunday sacredness is going to look pretty good because the world we're living in is biblically illiterate and it's going to be looking for pomp and circumstance to assure its troubled soul. The Protestants of the United States will be the foremost in stretching their hands across the, the Gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. Now stop and listen if you're an American citizen. Who has pumped this garbage around the world? Who has produced it and multiplied it like the leaves of autumn? It is the United States of America. And we're so quick to worry about whether or not it looks like we got a firm handshake with the Vatican. You're letting your kids watch these Disney videos that have the occult woven all through them and transgender and homosexuality dynamics as the new religion, the religion of license and liberty and so-called love. You're setting your kids up not only to have a a, a mind that's turned into spiritual Swiss cheese by, by reading what's light, trifling, and damning, But you need to understand the devil doesn't let go easy. And what he's doing is he's attempting to make sure that everybody knows what is not true, which is the idea that people can come back from the dead because he's going to show up as an angel of light. He's going to show up as Christ himself. He's going to work miracles and he's going to tell us. But we need to change a few things in the scriptures. You know that fourth commandment? It's just slightly off. We made that right. We turned the Lord's day, so-called supposedly, into the new day. How come you didn't get the memo? They'll reach across the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power, and under the influence of this threefold union, the country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights of conscience. That's this country. Protestantism that's acting like Rome, spiritualism that's based on the empirical, I saw it, I believed it, and Romanism which says, "Look, we've been standing true throughout the millennia. Listen to us. We've got the storyline down." As spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, there's a sentence for some Sabbath afternoon meditation. I wish somebody would do that. How does spiritualism and nominal Christianity look alike? Maybe it's about the senses. Maybe it's the sensory dynamic of selling you what you want and pleasing you and making you feel good. It has greater power to deceive and ensnare. That's apostate Protestantism. Satan himself is converted after the modern order of things. Ooh, that's kind of a sharp statement. He will appear in the character of an angel of light. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Many undeniable, undeniable, there's the evidence. Give me the data, will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible, there's some plausibility and manifest respect for the institutions of the church. There's some credibility. Their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. There, my friends, is the final deception in a paragraph. Satan works through the elements also. All right, you haven't read this in Great Controversy for a while, have you? Oh, the world, they've got their data on what's happening to the climate. I'm gonna give you a different lens to look through what's happening to the climate. Satan works through the elements also to garner his harvest of unprepared souls. He studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature, and he uses all his powers to control the elements as far as God allows let's get some illustrations. When he was was suffered to afflict Job, how quickly flocks and herds and servants and houses and children were swept away, one trouble succeeding after another. Most of those were climatic elements. They were climatic dynamics. But let's go farther. It is God that shields his creatures and hedges them from the power of the destroyer. But the Christian world have shown contempt for the law of God. And the Lord will do just what he's declared he would do. Think Elijah and three and a half years of no rain before Ahab. He will withdraw his blessings from the earth and remove his protecting care from those who are rebelling against his law and teaching and forcing others to do the same. Now, I'm not done on this topic. I've got another slide. But I want to make something clear to you. As the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from this earth, we can expect more extreme weather events. We can expect what happened to Job will happen in various places of this climate. But it's not because man-made CO2 gases have created the catastrophe. No, that's a sideline and a false truth. Although I'm not saying there's no science in that we're affecting the elements of the uh, earth at all. But the real story line is. God is withdrawing his hand. The planet is going through trauma. It is geriatric and it is aging. And some of these things are allowed to happen as divine warnings. Let's go farther. Even now he's at work in accidents and calamities by sea and land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes, terrific hailstorms, tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes. In every place in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power he sweeps away the ripening harvest and famine and distress follow well if you're a global climatologist and you don't know about this, the best you've got is the data. Well, the data looks pretty convincing, just like it's going to look convincing when there's demons working miracles in the name of God. What we have to do as a world, and what Seventh-day Avenue has been given, is to give a different paradigm of interpreting what's going on. Yes, the world has abandoned God's law. Yes, God is withdrawing His Holy Spirit. And yes, Satan is being allowed to exercise control over the elements themselves. These visitations are become more and more frequent and disastrous. Does it sound like extreme cl- cl- uh, climate catastrophe, climate emergency? Destruction will be both upon man and beast. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The haughty people do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they've transgressed the law. So there's a little room for man-made affectation there. Change the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath. Now, has this got a little truth and error mixed into it? And this sin has brought the calamities which will not cease until we look out for the common good. Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. And those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal supremacy, prosperity. Temporal prosperity. Have you ever heard that line called, it's the economy, stupid? Well, let me tell you what was different about the last two years that's going to be different in the future. During the last two years when compulsion and fear and persecution were the trifecta of compliance, there was one phenomena that was not happening. We were not in the midst of an economic meltdown. There was still but money to be made. There was still financial flowing. But when we get to the place where people are worried about how to keep the house over their heads and bread on the table, you're going to see the world galvanized and brought to attention on religious things in a way you've never seen before. The miracle working power manifested through spiritualism will exert its influence against those who choose to obey God rather than man. And it will be a bad influence. Communications from the spirits will declare that God sent them to convince the rejectors of Sunday of their error, that's you and me, affirming that the law of the land should be obeyed as the law of God. You heard some of that in the last two years as well. Quoting from Romans 13. They will lament the great wickedness in the world. This is the false church. And second, the testimony of religious teachers that the degraded state of morals is caused by the desecration of Sunday. Great will be the indignation against you and me great will be the indignation excited against all who refuse to accept their testimony and they have the data they're working miracles Satan's policy in this final conflict with God's people is the same that he employed in the opening of the great controversy in heaven which is what he professed to be seeking to promote the stability of the divine government hey let me talk to you I need to talk to you about how to make heaven a better place i got to make this work out better for God while secretly bending every effort to secure its overthrow. Under the rule of Rome, those who suffered death for their fidelity to the gospel were denounced as, okay, this is during that 1260 years, as evildoers. They were declared to be in league with Satan. That's quite an ad hominem attack. And every possible means was employed to cover them with reproach so, you won't even be able to go to the grocery store or get your gas without somebody recognizing you. One of those won't get with the program people to cause them to appear in the eyes of the people, even to themselves. Now, I didn't say this in the first service, but if you've ever lived with a verbal abuser, verbal abuse runs in cycles. The person verbally abuses until they get to the point where they realize it's about to break the relationship, then they stop and they're sorry and they make everything better. Then they go a little farther and they start up all over again because they're no different. You know what the real problem with a verbal abuser is? They actually convince the person they're abusing that it's that person's fault. Even to themselves. Can you imagine going through that period of time and saying to yourself, well, Maybe I am the cause of all this trouble on the face of the planet. As the vilest of criminals, so it will be now. While Satan seeks to destroy those who honor God's law. He'll cause them to be accused as lawbreakers, as men who are dishonoring God and bringing judgments on the world. To those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as the enemies of law and order. Sounds like what's going on right now, actually. Let's read the rest of the sentence. "Is breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption, and calling down the judgments of God. That sounds like what's happening in society right now. But it's all going to be refocused somewhere down the road, not too far on us. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy, stubbornness, and contempt of authority. The dignities of the church and state will unite. Listen to this. They're going to try what they did. Maybe I can give you out a... uh, Maybe I can give you a card for the, uh, the lottery. Does this have any familiar sound? Bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplemented or supplied with oppressive enactments. Even in free America, rulers and legislators in order to secure public favor. Now, hit the pause button again. Look at what's on the screen. I want you to think about it. Because for all those negative things you say about politicians, they're just gonna get out of the way of the masses, but they'll be in the way for a little bit saying, you know, our constitution says you can't do this. Some will. And some will be fomenting the societal dynamics because that's how politicians stay in power. They get out in front of wherever society's going and say, yeah, we're leading. But what I want you to see right here is that eventually it will be the desire of the masses not the legislators or the policemen, not the boogeyman's of society. It will be the culture itself that will say we need this law. Now, I'm almost done. I've got three definitions of virtue signaling and then one URL for one program I think everybody should watch. Virtue signaling from Cambridge, an attempt to show other people that you are a good person you ever read that part in the Bible where the one man prays, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I'm not sure that really the Bible ever gives countenance to making sure I go out of my way to show you I'm a good person. Like making statements about things that are culturally chic to make, com- to make statements about these days. Like tracing back the origins of land law and property. Unless you're going to give the property back, You probably shouldn't be decrying how evil it was for it to get into somebody's hands. An attempt to show people you're a good person, for example, by expressing opinions that will be acceptable to them. Yeah, you can even think about that. You can even figure out how to get favor, especially on social media. I like that part. Dictionary.com, the sharing of one's point of view on a social and political issue, often on social media, oh, they got the same there, in order to garner praise. Got to get those thumbs up, don't we? And acknowledge one's righteousness from others who share that point of view. Or to passively rebuke those who do not. But the, ba- the last one's the best one. You have Merriam Webster on your dictionary, in your dictionary, on one of your, your uh, bookcases. I like this one the best. It says The active practice of conspicuously displaying one's awareness of and attentiveness to political issues, matters of social and racial justice especially instead of taking effective action. I sat through a conversation about life for our uh, Native Americans. And I thought to myself, should I go to the microphone and say anything? There's a lot of reservations around this country that are blighted. And finally I thought to myself after listening to the conversation long enough, I'm going to go say something. And it made me feel hopefully not good in the wrong way to say that my church has been to one reservation in the last three or four years 15 times building a center of influence in a church. And seeking to put on health, I didn't say all of this, seeking to put on health seminars and go to the juvenile prisons. You know, Unless we're engaged with this society, I think we are just a a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. So what are you doing with your life? Are you busy amassing your wealth so you can have the good future? Are you completely committed to God's cause at the end of time and financing God's church and peopling it with your talents and your time? I don't need any virtue signaling. Some people are coming to church and they're virtue signaling they're good people. They at least are coming to church. They don't study the Bible. They don't study their Sabbath school lesson. They don't show up for anything else, but they virtue signal by sitting in a pew in this Seventh-day Adventist church. It isn't gonna cut it. You won't be ready to see Jesus and you won't be able to handle what's coming in the future. Virtue signaling is not an activity of a Christian, but virtuous living is. And you know what? The Bible says, when a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The truth of the matter is, is that standing for right will make you look bad for a while, but give it time. It's to God's honor to honor your name when you do justly love mercy and walk humbly. Now I'm almost done. This is a nine-minute video. Everybody should watch it, in my opinion, because it's the best, most objective post-operative on our recent two years. It's done by this Cheryl Atkinson. I had a member two weeks ago at a wedding reception that I was at say, Pastor, I want to talk to you. It was a member from one of our sister churches, a very large sister church in this community. The person holds a degree of eight years. The The name doctor is in front of their name. And they said, Pastor, I need you to know something. I just watched something this morning, and I didn't watch it on Fox News. I watched it on CBS. Okay, so I'm listening. Now, I'm just going to show you all the places where it airs, from Albany all the way down, 170 channels. Oh, well, let's make sure we just look at it. I've got it up right here. Let's see. It airs on NBC, ABC, NBC. uh, Fox does make it in there. Fox, Fox, CBS, ABC, ABC. Finding objective news is hard to do today. And when the person said to me, I heard it on CBS, she went out of her way to make sure. She said to me, Pastor, it wasn't on Fox. It was not a member of this church, not this local church. So I went and watched it. We just flipped through all the stations where it airs, 170 of them, full measure. And this was the name of the program. Now, why does this matter to me? This matters to me. Because we as a church have yet to discover and make informal statement, what is liberty of conscience and what is religious liberty in regards to what we just went through in the last two years. And a lot of what we called science, we found out wasn't really good science. And almost nobody said they're sorry or they've made any mistakes, although the leader of the CDC has acknowledged some of that. And she's interviewed in this program, nine minutes long. But some of us probably wish we could have done things a little different in the last two years. Some should have spoken up and didn't. Some should have stood up and stayed seated. But I'm here to tell you we had a lot of virtue signaling going on over the last two years to make sure everybody knew I was a good person. There were some people, including myself, who had to look like a bad person for a little while to stand up simply for choice. Not against the vaccine and not against masks, just for a choice. A choice? Since when is that controversial and bad in America? Especially when you're dealing with an experiment. It was called an emergency use authorization. Now, I don't have to be right unless being right is about being on the right path for the future. And if that's the case, then figuring out what was right and wrong over the last two years might be figuring out what I need in the days and the weeks and the months and the years that come now. Because I'm here to tell you, if you think there was societal pressure on over the last two years, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because... When the devil gets a little more play with the elements of nature, when the economy implodes as it cannot help but do so, as in our materialistic ways, we've barred ourselves into purgatory or hell. When it gets to the place where there's no more any human solutions like borrowing and printing money or making new medicines, we're going to watch the world turn back to the one place it always turns to in a crisis, and that is to God so postured. And when it does, there'll be no turning back. God himself will be on trial in the form of his people who say, he has been faithful to me, he has stood by my side, and he will stand by my side still. And though he slay me, I will follow him. But Jesus went all the way to the cross by himself for me, and I'm going to stand for truth and be a light until the darkness snuffs it out in the end. This is where it's going. And to suggest somehow that we just look the other way on the last two and a half years without a serious conversation about what liberty of conscience means and obedience and religious liberty is to put ourselves in a tremendous posture of jeopardy relative to our obligations to the rest of the world. Let the facts be told. Let the facts be discovered. But if you don't know how to walk with the footman, how are you gonna run with the horses in the crossing of the Jordan? Jesus has awakened us to not only how the final movements could be rapid ones, but what the final methods could be. Fear, coercion, and persecution are a rare trifecta for this 21st century democratic republic. But I'm here to tell you today, the God who took Daniel through the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, the God who nerved David to stand up Goliath, the God who went with Jehoshaphat in the choir, the God who stood by medium with his 300 men against 120,000 Midianites, The God who has stood by the side of the the Israelites at the Red Sea and made a way on dry ground, not monkey messy sea bottom, but dry ground, the God who has been a cloud by day and a fire by night and food every morning, that God is taking his people through all the way. The question will be, will I have carried my cross today, then whom I've called today, stood for my convictions today, so that it won't be a strange new experience when 10 tons of bricks are suggested to be laid on my shoulders. Friends, day by day, God wants to grow our faith. And I'm here to tell you, there's greater vindication coming and there's greater discussions that are needed. But here's the truth. The truth sets you free. The truth. Nothing else, nothing less, only that. Some of you are listening to me here today and you're not ready to meet Jesus. God's been nagging. If I could put those two words together. The Holy Spirit's appealing to you. Move. Take a step. Set yourself free. Commit in a different way. Don't be embarrassed and afraid, and don't love this world to the point of costing yourself an eternal life. Bond yourself deeply to the people who have broken free through the power of the indwelling Christ. Attach yourself to this message and this movement and face the future without fear. That's where we are. And this morning I'm appealing to everybody, make a decision. Write it down. If you want to visit from a pastor, write on that Connect card. If it's time for you to make a new decision or a decision for the first time, write it on that Connect card. Drop it in the hands of a pastor who will be greeting you as you leave this place. I'll be down here for anybody that wants to visit. In the meantime, I want you to remember something. Jesus has seen his people all the way through, and the proof is in the pudding. He already went to the cross, abandoned by everybody, and he had you on his mind. May God bless us as we face the future with courage, strength, confidence, and no fear, because the time is coming when virtue signaling will happen again on steroids. In the meantime, we're going to have to know the difference between virtue and virtue signaling. Amen.